0: Hi there and welcome to another OSLA podcast. My name's Todd Fraser and in this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. On today's podcast I'll be chatting with Dr Jocelyn Lowinger. Jocelyn is a former GP with a Master of Science in Coaching Psychology. She works in medical practitioner development through her business GP Coach. Welcome to the podcast Jocelyn. Thank you.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now, Jocelyn, you formerly practised as a GP, but have moved into the area of coaching in recent times, specifically assisting medical practitioners. What led you down that pathway into this line of work?
1: It's been a really long journey, and I don't want to, you know, to listen to the whole 20 years of it is not really relevant. But suffice to say that I struggled for a long time to find my place in medicine, and Hopped around doing lots of different things: general practice and public health, medical writing, and ultimately, I was working in a corporate role um, where it was very difficult politics. So I hired a coach to help me with the politics, which is generally what's done in the corporate world. And I was like, "This is amazing! This I I, I'm going. This is stuff that junior doctors need." (laughs) And so. after I've worked with my own coach for about two and a half years, but after that I've been subsequently enrolled and now completed Masters of Coaching Psychology at Sydney Uni with the intention to bring this back to medicine because I'm totally convinced it's a, an element missing out of our education and we desperately need it. And so that's kind of how I've ended up. the very short story version of how I've ended up working as a coach for doctors.
0: So as you said, this is not a new concept in other industries, is it? It's been in the business sphere for a long time, but it's a a concept that's unfamiliar to many working in healthcare. So can you walk through what coaching actually is and what it's designed to achieve?
1: Sure. Well, I think first of all, you're right. Coaching, look, it's come out of, to a large extent, sports psychology. Sports people have had coaches for a long time. And it sort of merged with psychology and consulting and probably started to become its own thing in around the early 2000s. So it's very new in the whole world altogether. But it's had quite a big takeoff in the business world and only really now starting to get traction in the medical world. I think really coaching takes a view of people as resourceful, creative and whole. So we're looking to develop people along those lines. So it's looking at what are people's strengths, what what are they capable of, what's their potential, and helping people grow into that versus a medical model, which is much more looking at what's broken and what needs fixing. So I don't think that one way of looking at people is better than the other, but I, think, I do think we actually probably need both. And where the world has been missing out a lot on is looking at this what's our developmental potential versus the you know the traditional psychotherapy something's broken we need it to be fixed and that's kind of limiting because you can only ever get to baseline then once I've fixed but I'm never going to get to beyond baseline into flourishing or you know being developed and growing into my potential from that viewpoint so we do need both and I think bringing this developmental idea into medicine is is awesome. I love it.
0: Jocelyn, you recently authored a paper in the uh, Medical Journal of Australia that talked about some of these issues and how it impacts on the way that um, healthcare sees itself and the problems that that might generate, um, talking about the, uh, the postmodern uh, philosophy. Can you just uh, walk us through that?
1: Yeah, well, look... I guess what I see is that medicine itself is a very modernist philosophy. It's it's built off assumptions that there's an external reality that we can know, we can understand, and we can fix. And it, it's been incredibly successful for medicine. You, you just look around at all the achievements that we've made in all different sorts of areas. But that clashes a little bit with the whole postmodern world that we're living in, that you know, you look at the anti-vax movements, for example, and, and this is my belief that sitting underneath that is a postmodern assumption that we don't need to listen to authority because there is no real authority. I, I am my own authority. So we're very much living in a world that, that trusts itself more than anyone else, which has some benefits, but it very much clashes with medicine because we've been built off this, you know, external reality and authority and hierarchy and our system works like that. And then there's a big clash with the rest of the world that's going like, well, we don't really trust authority anymore. We don't trust our politicians. We don't trust science. All the traditional, we don't trust religion. So all the traditional authorities that we've had in society are sort of being discarded. So that makes it very difficult for medicine as a profession. How do we move forward, even in a world that's partly saying, we don't trust you? So I think there's a lot of tensions. In there, How does medicine evolve to meet that? Because I think if we keep going with, we just need to educate people. If only they'll understand us, we're the experts. I I don't know that message is getting through any longer because the world isn't really prepared to be listening in that way. The world kind of wants to be engaged. You know, we're also the experts. So there's a little bit of that. You see that a little bit in the um, shared decision-making movements and patient-centered care except that I don't think we're fully in it yet. I think we're just dabbling in the edges and then it feels a little bit risky because if I have to let go of my expertise as the doctor, then I'm at medical legal risk and then patients may make the wrong decisions and, and so there's, there's a lot of tension around really moving into that
0: space. Sorry, the implication there, I guess, is that uh, that healthcare itself needs to find a better way of interacting with um, with the community. How do you think that that will transpire?
1: Look, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know that I'd like to bring coaching into medicine to help the profession evolve. As much I work with individuals, pretty much because I have to, because the I haven't been able to get traction at a systems level at all, and I think it's just the time's not right yet. Ultimately, I think in the way that coaching has helped transform big business, it's going to medicine is going to need that kind of input from a at every level, like the top, from the ministries of health through to the executives of hospitals to senior clinical leaders, and then into the actual on the ground. So there's going to be need to be that kind of intervention across (laughs) the, you know, across levels and within silos and across silos. I don't know how to make that happen and I don't even know what type of effort would make, but that that I can see is actually being a realistic way of creating the system change that everyone's crying out for because we're all burned out and the suicide rate's too high and I know myself, I've got a lot of people coming to me, I want to leave critical medicine. So I think change has to happen. It's just a matter of how and when. And all I'm trying to do is help people one by one because that's what's been within my capacity thus far. If I can get more doctors who are interested in coaching together and we can form a whole group of people, then it might be a bit easier to start working as a team. But as one person, I'm pretty limited
0: what are the sort of people who come to you um, for coaching in your in your professional capacity? What sort of issues are they seeking assistance for? And what do you how, walk us through? What the, a, a practical example of how you might go about that might
1: mm-hmm. be. Yeah, so I'd say probably the vast majority of people, regardless of what their let's say inverted commas presenting issue is. Regardless of what they say they're trying to resolve, for most, not all, but for most, sitting underneath that is this issue of confidence. I'm not feeling confident and everyone else everyone else can do this, but I can't. I'm terrified of error and and maybe I need to change specialties or maybe I need to go find a different career altogether. So that's probably sitting at the core of most of the people who come to me. I also get people who I'm having trouble getting through an exam. And so it's, that's a slightly different issue, but also both are really related to the way we are making meaning out of the world and how we're – it's the it's way we're constructing our own reality. So oftentimes with the exams issue, I've had a couple of people where there's absolutely nothing wrong with their knowledge It's the way they're understanding the exam. So some, for a couple of people, it's been deep down. They've believed the exam is a waste of time. They don't really need it. It's not what they're being examined on things they don't think they're going to need in the future or it's in some way wrong. And so then once you can identify that attitude and totally reframe it, you know, bring an entirely different perspective into the exam, that's when they pass. So, And that had nothing to do with their knowledge. It had to do with an understanding meaning they'd been making out of the exam that's preventing them from fully engaging in it. So those are, you know, the commonest issues. A couple of times I'll get people saying I'm burned out, but usually when I talk to the people who are burned out, what will emerge is, well, actually I'm burned out because I'm not feeling confident. And so I'm overcompensating by working too hard and, and I'm overcompensating by spending all my weekends studying because I don't think I'm good enough. So there's there, this sort of confidence idea sits underneath a lot of what I see.
0: And how do you go about then um, the process of coaching people through that confidence issue? What are the steps that, that are involved?
1: Well, the steps... I don't have a recipe approach at all, so it's very much bespoke and individualised to that person. So my job is really to get as onto their page as I can, understand as much and as best as I can how that person is understanding the world, what meaning they're making out of their challenge, and what sort of development therefore they may need in terms of, You know, once I get an understanding and then checking out with them that this is how they're seeing it, then it's kind of like I walk together as a partner and we co-create possibilities for different ways of seeing, different things to experiment with. So it's really a flattened power structure. I feel much more like I'm a partner in this with my clients. I'm not an expert. It's their life. And we kind of co-create possibilities and discuss them and, I'll share things that I've read or share things that other clients have said and then it's totally up to whoever I'm working with to say, no, nah, that doesn't work for them or that that actually really resonates and then we talk about how they might incorporate that. And often there'll be – I usually set homework or some activities between sessions and it's, and it's around looking for things – that we often don't look for a medicine. So usually I'll be getting people to keep some kind of success diary or what went well diary because we're all very, very focused on what went wrong. And we have to be. In order to improve, we do need to be able to identify error, but we will never reach what they're capable of if we don't recognise our strengths. So we actually need to start balancing out those two Prongs of Yeah, I'm always going to grow and I'm human, so I will make error. So I want to mitigate that error for the future. But I've got strengths and talents and I need to know what they are, first of all, so I can grow them. And second of all, because those strengths and things that I'm good at are going to help me manage the errors. It's, so it's, it's really starting to look at the person as a whole person. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the key characteristics yes. that I see in a lot of clinicians is the ability to self-flagellate, which I think um, reflects your your perspective that a lot of the issues that you see are related to self-confidence. How good are yep. clinicians at evaluating where they stand? Uh, we hear a lot about imposter syndrome and people feeling that they're tackling things that they don't feel equipped for. Are we any good at evaluating where we stand in, uh, in our careers?
1: I... Look, I generally think if we're operating off what my impression of myself is, using a standard of how I think other people are doing, then we're really rubbish at it. We we just can't get a handle on it because we've got blind spots, so we know that there's always parts of our performance in ourselves that we can't see, that others can, which is the value of working with an independent person, because they can help us see things that we couldn't. But also... And I'm sure you've heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Everybody's talking about it. And I think it's a little misunderstood. But when you go back to read their original paper, what they did was a whole bunch of experiments on, just not doctors, but all sorts of people, on getting them to estimate their performance before some objective tests. And so a whole bunch of people, and they did a whole different sorts of tests, whether they were logic tests or whatever they were, And they reliably and repeatedly found that the people who before the test thought they were going to do the best were the worst performers. And the people who were sort of a bit doubtful about the performance turned out to be the highest performers. So you've kind of got these curves that cross. So when you look at the people who are objectively in the top quartile of performers, they all underestimated how they were going to do. And the people in the bottom quartile had all overestimated. So... And there's really like a very minuscule number of people where those lines cross, where they got it just right. So, pretty much, I say nobody can get it right. Nobody can really understand their own performance. And it's about trying then to assess yourself in a more objective way and trying to set yourself learning tasks that are measurable and be focusing on those measures of success. and and releasing yourself from comparing to others and releasing yourself from judging by your emotion of how something felt. Because we know that we're learning and presumably through all the years of training, you're in training because you're not an expert yet. So therefore, if you're in training, you don't know everything and you're learning and learning can be really uncomfortable. So the fact of feeling uncomfortable does not equate poor performance, but we often misinterpret that I felt uncomfortable, therefore I mustn't be any good. And so it's, so part of the education I do with people is helping them understand that learning is actually meant to be uncomfortable. Remember learning to drive and that, oh, my God, I'm never going to master this. And then after a while you do. So all learning. And even I think a lot of people with fellowships will find they're still learning. So the, the fact of feeling uncomfortable in a clinical situation has really changed no bearing on your competence in that situation, so trying to disconnect those two things the emotions need to be looked at but understood maybe in a different way and the performance needs to be looked at as an objective thing what was I trying to do what was the outcome what what went well there and and what could I do better for next time? And, and just trying to be much more of a, a you know a scientist about it rather than an emotional human. Because when we engage as the emotional human, we're more than likely underestimating ourselves.
0: What are the outcomes that you're looking for with your coaching? When do you, where, where are you trying to head with it and how do you know when you've got there?
1: Well, I'm trying to head in helping people be as self-sufficient as possible. So when people tell me, I don't need this anymore, I've got it, I'm I'm off and running, that's great. That's exactly the right space because it's a fundamental assumption that people can do this. So the last thing I want to do is create dependency on me. Um, So the measure of success is when people go, Jocelyn, I'm doing great, I don't need you anymore. So it's always a bit sad, of course, but it's great because they've moved from I'm terrified, I'm not feeling confident to I can do this. It's an amazing feeling and to watch people starting to flourish in that space where they were really tempted to run away before is extraordinary and it's such a win for themselves personally and it's a win for their profession and it's a win for their patients.
0: Jocelyn, we're a very evidence-driven industry um, and there is actually a surprising amount of evidence behind the impact of coaching in business sphere, isn't there? Can you run us through that?
1: yeah look, I mean, as I say, it's a relatively new industry only since around two thousand and two has there really even started to be any kind of systematically collected um coach or systematically done coaching and evidence collected around it. I think, as doctors, we get very focused on a particular type of evidence because we do randomised controlled trials of very large data sets and we're often doing things that are very highly measurable, like um, you know drug dose or uh, something we can look at under the microscope scope, So it's very specific and it's a lot easier to say this is strong evidence and gold standard evidence. With psychological evidence, we're dealing with humans and very often it's self-report. So by nature, if we're looking at gold standard evidence, it's going to come out weaker than medical evidence. Having said that, there are so many consistent findings that coaching, improves performance, it improves goal attainment and it improves well-being. They've shown it over and over and over again. So kind of despite the inherent relative weakness of the research, just by the fact that it's being repeated, so, the findings are being repeated so often, is kind of like, well, we, we don't need to really show that coaching works anymore and we're moving on to how does coaching work. You know, those are more sophisticated questions. So what are the elements of coaching that work? But the fact that it works, I think, has been pretty much accepted um, across the board now. I don't even know if anyone's doing any more research on does it work, because they're saying we're, we're satisfied that it does.
0: Jocelyn, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you about all of this today.
1: No, you're very welcome, Anytime, And if anybody's got any more questions, I'm happy to come again.
0: Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more interesting interviews just like this, please visit our website, osla.force.com.